Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton, your host of the Staying Healthy Today Show. This is a show where we bring you key experts in the fields of nutrition, prevention, integrative and lifestyle medicine, review the medical literature, and review case studies. Today's show topic is, what do the people of the Marshall Islands teach us about reversing the diabetes epidemic? Our guest today is Brenda Davis. She's a registered dietitian author, outstanding speaker, and international nutrition educator to health professionals and the public. I've heard Brenda speak on three different occasions, and it's been absolutely informative and delightful to listen to her. Uh, she has also co-authored nine best-selling nutrition and diet-related books. She lives in, I hope I say this right, Kelowna, British Columbia, with her husband, Paul Davis. So welcome, Brenda. Thanks for coming on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me, Kurt. So you've been traveling around quite a bit. You're you're a very popular speaker. Um, so, what what got you interested in nutrition in the first place to and to become a registered dietitian? Well, you know what? It was a long time ago, but I, I for some reason I can remember in high school just being very very interested in in food and health and and just decided that it was something I felt so passionate about. It made sense for that to kind of be my career path. And so I knew probably by the time I was about in grade 11 that I, that I wanted to, to, you know, spend my life working in that particular field. How did you move from a traditional registered dietitian, and I say that in quotes, to someone who is deeply rooted in whole plant-based nutrition and especially as a tool to reverse a lot of the chronic diseases? How do you, how did you move into that realm? Well, you know, I, it's funny. I was I always was interested in in sort of the vegetarian world, although it seemed to me sort of an impossible world to be in. I had never really met real live vegetarians, and I it was just I, I found the idea of not eating animals quite attractive. Uh, and when I went to university, of course, um, that was not nurtured. <laughs> I mean, we, we actually learned two things about vegetarian nutrition in university. And here we're talking about, you know, 1978. So I, we learned that uh, ve- vegetarian diets were risky and vegan diets were downright dangerous. And that was pretty much it. Uh, so it was after university, I was still very, very passionate about nutrition and health. And I was a public health nutritionist and I was very interested in the World Health Organization documents and trying to get a more global perspective on a lot of the issues. And um, it was, you know, I, I, I was just slowly shifting towards a, 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 a more sort of plant-strong diet, I guess you could say, as, as, uh, as the years went by. And I, 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 the evidence was really quite overwhelming that that was the direction we needed to go in. But for me, the, the kind of the thing that pushed me over the edge, if you will, was my, um, you know, an interaction I had um, in probably 1989 with a deer hunter. And he was one of our, our closest friends. He was on his way deer hunting. And I just, I, I couldn't stand the thought of him shooting an animal. So I, I just tried to make him feel guilty about it. And you know, just uh, said, like, what possesses you to do something like that? And and it was really, you know, I kind of criticized him. <laughs> it was what he said back to me that actually changed the course of my life. Because he, he basically said, you know, just because you don't have the guts to pull the trigger doesn't mean you're not responsible for the trigger being pulled every time you buy your piece of meat camouflaged in the cellophane in, in the grocery store. 
He said, at least the animals I eat have had a life. Wonder if you can say the same for the ones sitting on your plate. And it, it was really the first time anyone had ever challenged me to take responsibility for the food that I was eating. And, uh, and it, it really hit me. I, I started thinking about it, and I started to research a little bit. I, I ordered, you know, agriculture magazines and things like that and journals. And I was, um, I was very quickly pretty much horrified by what I was learning. Uh, and, I mean, I should have known it's, uh, the industry is about, you know, producing the most meat for the least amount of money. And, of course, we were very much going in the direction of, you know, concentrated animal feeding operations or factory farms. And I, um, I just thought, why am I doing this? I thought, here, here we are. We know eating lower on the food chain is ecologically responsible. We know plants have fiber and phytochemicals and antioxidants and all of these things that are healthy for us. Um, <clears throat> we know it's possible to get the nutrients you need eating this way. I thought, why am I contributing to the this horrendous pain, suffering, and death when I really don't have to. And I thought, I, I don't want my life to be about, you know, about contributing to that sort of thing. So I just, I, I approached my husband, who was, you know, from northern Ontario, all his best friends were hunters, and I said, um, you know, I would really like to be completely vegetarian. And I asked him if he would be willing um, to do that. And, and he... His, his answer actually shocked me. He said, I thought you'd never ask. He <laughs> said, I do love vegetarian. Yeah, I was just stunned because he said, you know, he said, I went through university and learning all about the environment. And he said, I know that the best thing we can do for the environment is to eat lower on the food chain. So he was definitely ahead of his time and was sort of always a step ahead of me, I think. <laughs> um, but uh, So that was wonderful. My Our kids were little, like they were four and one at the time. Our parents completely freaked out. No one threw us a sort of vegetarian coming out party or anything. It was it was hard because we were in a place where we didn't know any other vegetarians, and I certainly didn't know if I'd ever meet a, uh, you know, a, a, a real live uh, vegetarian dietitian. I didn't know if any existed on the planet. So it was, it was uh, yeah, not, it wasn't that easy. So well, let, let me ask you then, you, you, you put up the word vegan, vegetarian, and, and most of the time you and your colleagues use whole food, plant-based nutrition. So yeah. define the difference because there's a lot of he- unhealthy vegans and vegetarians out there. So define what you mean before we get into talking about diabetes in this kind of approach. Yeah, so so basically a vegan is someone who chooses not to consume any animal products at all. And it's often, you know, ethically uh, centered. It's, um, it's a choice for the environment and, and, and ethically. Within that vegan world, um, there are people that consume junky diets. There are people that consume whole food plant-based diets. Um, the term plant-based is not necessarily vegetarian or vegan. Um, all five blue zones are plant-based. Uh, only one is vegetarian. Um, so, so you know, the proper probably definition of, of plant-based is, is uh, mostly plants or largely plants or something like that. But when we say whole foods plant-based, most people who are using that term are talking about a vegan diet, one that is completely uh, plant-based without any animal products. But, they, you know, the waters are a little murky in terms of definitions, and I think we need to 
uh, define these terms um, for once and for all, so to, to help people a little bit with that. But, um, but essentially, I promote a vegan diet that is whole food plant-based. Right, and the difference Because I want it to get 100%, um, you know, animal-free. Well, correct. And, and what I... When I vision whole food plant-based, what it really means also, it's an unprocessed plant-based diet. So we're not adding the sugars and oils and, and fats and other confectionery things that can be in a vegan diet, but be trash. And, and that's where I think a lot of vegans get a bad name because they just go to vegan junk food. So that's when I think of, when I think of whole. Yeah, that's one of choice within that sort of whole realm. But a proper uh, healthy vegan diet, just like a proper healthy omnivorous diet, uh, wouldn't be that. <laughs> it would be a, a much more whole food uh, diet. But I, and I have to say, within that whole food plant-based world, there are a lot of people that aren't doing it that well, that ignore essential nutrients, that use a lot of um, things that they think are whole foods. They're using all these whole wheat products that have all kinds of sugar and fat and salt added and you know so so I think there even within that world there's some confusion people think um, you know a, a puffed wheat grain is is you know the same as a wheat berry and it, it's really not uh, it's not nutritionally and it's not in terms of the impact on blood sugar so I think there there are you know some differences even within that whole food plant-based uh, movement well that, that leads us to the topic of the day for me, and that was, you know, I was very powerfully moved by um, your slideshow. I heard it, I think, two or three years ago, Defeating Diabetes, the Story of Hope in the Marshall Islands. And one of the things that sticks out in, in my my brain, because I know a lot of the, the people in the plant-based world, the physicians who purport, you know, their plant-based diet can reverse type 2 diabetes. But one of the things, there was a slide which showed carbohydrates in their absolutely whole and intact state. And I sometimes pull that out for patients to look at so they don't get confused. And so I was wondering if you can explain how you um, got to go to the Marshall Islands and and, and then we'll talk about the diet there. Sure. It it was an interesting, you know, um, uh, opportunity, really. There's there's a group of Seventh-day Adventist missionaries uh, that have been providing medical teams sort of, you know, essentially uh, very, very low cost or free of charge to the Marshall Islands for probably close to 30 years now. And they bring in teams of oncologists and and ENT doctors and dentists and you name it just to help the Marshallese people. And they, they, they watched the diabetes epidemic really unfold. And they thought, we've got to do something. So they, they actually put in uh, a proposal for a grant from the U.S. Department of Defense. And they were awarded that grant. And so then when they got the grant to do this research, they had to find a team of people that would be capable of carrying it out. And the, the man that they hired as their medical director had just been at a at a conference where I was speaking on defeating diabetes. And he purchased a book I wrote called Defeating Diabetes. So this is a lot of years ago. And, uh, and, and he said, you know, I think this person might be the one that could design this program for us, um, the nutrition part of the program, of course. And so they, they called me up and said, would you be willing to, 
you know, take six or eight months of your life and come to the Marshall Islands and help us design and implement uh, a diabetes reversal program. And I thought, how could I possibly do this? I've got all kinds of things booked and projects on the go. And But I, I thought about it, and it was really my son who pushed me. <laughs> he said, Mom, if you won't go, I'll go without you. <laughs> he was in grade 11. He wanted to go so bad. So we ended up, my husband took a leave of absence. I cleared my schedule, and we had all planned to go for, you know, they were going to come for four months, my husband and son, and I was going to go for six. I ended up being there for eight months. Uh, the first time, but I continued to go go back every year or two and and continue to do interventions. But that's uh, that's the story of how I got well, there. Well, let's talk about the problem. Well, there's two things. One is the plant, the use of a plant-based diet, which is not an indigenous diet to the Marshallese people, which was rich in, you know, coconut products, certain types of plantains, bananas, and and fish, and and other some plant foods there on the island. So you took a diet that wasn't available anymore and you brought in a very high comp well un, unprocessed carbohydrate type diet and did you have any idea that it would work there in this indigenous people that it was a totally different diet than their original culture ate yeah so i have to be totally honest here we were trying to uh, do um as much as we could that would be fairly similar to their traditional diet and Although at the clinic, when they were in the first two weeks of the intervention or the first month of the intervention, um, we really encouraged them to eliminate all animal products, and including fish. Um, after that first sort of intensive part of the intervention, we left it up to them uh, whether or not they would consume fish at home. And we said that that's a very reasonable option. These are island people, and if we want to get a diet that they will stick with for the rest of their lives, uh, it, it's really probably not practical or possible for them to completely eliminate fish because it's very much, um, you know, it's very, very much a community and, and there are very few isolated little um, people that live in their isolated little dwelling and don't interact socially. It is just a very, very social culture. So we basically, there were some people that did decide to be completely vegetarian, but those were sort of richer people that really did live in their own little house. Most of the others uh, did incorporate some fish at some point. Um, but we asked them not to fry it, only if they were using fish at home, that it be boiled or, you know, prepared in a way that wouldn't produce a lot of, a lot of you know, oxidants. And then um, we did ask them to eliminate all other animal products, including all the, the spam and chicken and, you know, all of the other meat and dairy products that they do consume. Well, let me ask you this. How, how did, before I, I want to stay on that topic, but how did their, I, I kind of skipped this, but their diet got unindigenous and, and very poor, um, very poor, nutrient poor because of now after after the their the area was used for the the atomic bomb testing, correct in World War II, and did that not? Yeah, af yeah, it was actually not during, but just after World War II, uh, there there were uh, you know some very significant uh, atomic bombs that were you know there were, there was atomic bomb testing on an island uh, called Bikini Island, and Bikini is actually quite far from where most of the Marshallese live. 
but the people of Bikini were displaced and put on a small island and given some food rations to, to help them survive because there wasn't enough food for them on the islands they were put on. Um, but many people believe Bikini is still not very inhabitable, so most of them aren't on Bikini now. Uh, so the big island where most of the people are is Majuro, and Majuro is, is quite, I don't know how many miles, but it's hundreds and hundreds of miles from from um, Bikini. So, how so they did... Go ahead, go ahead. Well, they did, of course, were influenced by by the people that took them over. I mean, they were they were taken over by Japanese for a while, then by the Americans. They're now an independent country, but they were still very influenced by the missionaries and by people that were coming in with food. And uh, and what, what eventually happened is, so we've got Majuro, for example. It's an island that's 3.7 square miles in area. It's 30 miles long. And, um, you know, you've got beachfront property on both sides of your house almost for most of the island. It's a very long, skinny kind of island. And, um, and they, you know, the people there, that island might, might hold, I don't know, sustain 500 to 1,000 people. Uh, there are 30,000 people there. So, so it's impossible for them to live on indigenous food with the number of people that are on that island. And so they have to import food now. And because they don't have work, most of them, I mean, it, the, the unemployment rates, I don't know, are 70% plus. So most people don't have work, uh, so they're very poor. So, of course, the food they import is the cheapest food that people can buy. So it's, you know, big sacks of white rice and canned meat and just, you know, high-sugar drinks and just really a lot of ramen noodles and, and these very cheap, packaged, processed foods, and that's this current situation. So how did then, all right, so now I got a little clearing on, on how that happened there. So what was the rate of diabetes originally there? Um, wasn't it one of the highest death rates in the world there on the island? Or is it? Yeah, so originally, like 70 or 80 years ago, there wasn't any diabetes. There right. wasn't any. I think they might have had one or two cases of type 1. It was extremely rare. Type 2 was almost pretty much non-existent. Uh, today, they they have, um, you know, definitely one of the highest rates of, of diabetes, in you know, on the planet. And it's um, probably the sort of latest um, estimates um, in 2014, in the IDF, um, International Diabetes Federation Atlas, uh, they were estimating, estimating a, a prevalence of about 37.4%, which is, you know, for people between ages 20 and 79. And um, pre-diabetes, they estimate probably at least 90 to 95% of the population has pre-diabetes. And again, we're talking about adults. So even in people, I was shocked when we were, originally we went to Guam to see their, just to, to see another program that was similar to ours, and we had two young 20-something Marshallese ladies with us that we were training, and their insulin, even though they weren't diabetic yet, their insulin levels were absolutely through the roof. We were stunned, so they were very pre-diabetic, uh, even in their 20s, so it's, uh, it, it's just... Um, it's, Kids, not at all. The kids are lean. They're very, very physically active, and uh, you just you don't see type two diabetes in the kids at all. It's not till they hit adulthood that 
that all hell breaks loose. And the thing is, is that, is that they, you know, they don't have to get really overweight to get type 2 diabetes there because when you take a population that has lived off the land for generation after generation after generation, they somehow, if they start all of a sudden they're eating these really highly processed foods, their bodies don't know what to do with these things and they develop diabetes very, very rapidly, even at 15, 20 pounds overweight in some cases. Some of the men aren't overweight at all and they've got diabetes. Well, tell us about the, the diet that you introduced. Now I understand better that you introduced a totally plant-based diet for a while and then they it's kind of like a pescatarian vegetarian diet for the rest of the, the island. So tell us what the foods were and how they accepted it. Yeah, so, so basically the diet that we were trying to provide was uh, a diet that was very high in fruits and vegetables, very high in fiber, like 40, 50 grams of fiber at least, and lots of beans. So, so for example, breakfast would be um, a, a very low GI grain like barley. Um, we always had beans and greens for breakfast. They loved beans and greens, so that was something we would serve. Uh, we tried to use very little ground grains, so any flour products we just didn't use. They were very carbohydrate sensitive, which is maybe surprising for people to hear, but we really did have to monitor the amount of concentrated carbohydrates they ate because when you're insulin resistant, uh, it's just your body doesn't know what to do with them all. So we, we had to be very careful about using lower GI grains and starchy vegetables as well. But so we would do, um, you know, certainly they would have seeds and nuts on their breakfast. And then um, we used non-dairy milk, of course. And the one that was available was soy milk. Uh, and then uh, lunch was usually um, some sort of salad and soup type meal, often a, you know, a main sal a big salad that was, that included kind of the full meal deal. It included something starchy and the protein and, so usually beans. And then dinner, we tried to keep light, and we did mostly um, one-pot meals where the participants were cooking them themselves so we could teach them how to cook. And so it would usually be a bean and vegetable-based kind of concoction, some sort of stewy thing or curry or something like that. And, uh, of course, we included plenty of, uh, you know, probably maybe three servings of fruit a day, uh, we were aiming for at least six or seven servings of vegetables, and which is hard because it's it, you know in, it, it's hard for people to afford that stuff there. So we we knew that. I mean, we can't people that earn two bucks an hour. It's hard to afford apples that are two dollars a pound. So um, so we would uh, we spent a lot of time teaching people how to grow food. Uh, unfortunately, they you know they live on a coral reef. So the soil is, is pretty dismal. So we brought in a lot of earth boxes and different different ways of growing food and spent a lot of time trying to teach them the basics of growing because they've got a year-round growing season. It's always sunny. and So that was um, something that we spent a lot of time with. So tell me about the... So people get confused about when you say starches and things like that. So when you say a low glycemic starch... Um, are you just saying, for example, you don't use the flour, you use the whole grain? Like, for example, you wouldn't have a wheat bread, you'd have 
boiled wheat berries. I'm not saying you did that here, but I'm just saying the concept is to have it, the grain in its whole state and cook it like a cereal. Is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. And we taught them to sprout things as well. But, but basically we were, you know, definitely trying to teach people um, that all carbohydrates are not created equal. And, uh, and so we wanted them to, to, you know, the amount matters and the quality matters where carbohydrates are concerned. So, so the thing that you don't want people to be doing is to be eating carbohydrates that have been stripped of everything of value to human health and then had a bunch of sugar and fat and salt and additives and everything else added to it, and then you eat it. It's, it's just bad news where diabetes is concerned. So you want the carbohydrates to come packaged with fiber and phytochemicals and antioxidants and all of these compounds, uh, prebiotics, and all of these compounds that will actually help people to heal. And uh, so, you know, one of the things I like to tell the people in the Marshall Islands is, you, you need to look at what you're eating as, as you know, we, I love Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn uses an analogy that sort of, it's like your house is on fire when you've got um, this type of disease. And so we would say, you know, these unhealthy foods are like putting gasoline on the fire. And these healthy foods are like putting water on the fire. And so we were really quite um, concerned about people eating uh, really intact whole grains and, and eating the types of starchy vegetables that had a little lower impact on blood sugar or were the more slowly digested and absorbed types of, of um, uh, carbohydrates. Besides, so besides whole grains, give us some examples of those intact, starchy, low glycemic carbohydrates that you encouraged on the island. Yeah, so, so we would encourage things like uh, bananas, um, uh, taro. Uh, breadfruit is similar to potatoes, so we had to, you know, moderate the intake of breadfruit, but we certainly included it because we wanted to include every local food that we could. Um, people, you know, when they ate local foods and lived off the land, they didn't have diabetes. <laughs> so we wanted to encourage them as much as possible to, to eat the, the, the local foods that were available. So things like um, uh, taro are, are, you know, taro is actually quite a good choice. Um, if they could get, it has a glycemic index of about 53, which is kind of a medium, um, you know, or is really, I guess, a low glycemic. Anything under 55 is low, but it's, it's, it's at the higher end of the low. <laughs> and uh, so every, every other vegetable we could get, uh, you know, when we would be choosing potatoes, we would choose a sweet potato over a white potato uh, when it was available, but it, it wasn't always available. So uh, definitely we used a lot of squash. So they have a big, a, like a local pumpkin that would be kind of our equivalent to, you know, butternut squash or something that we used a lot of that, um, which, you know, is, has a reasonable uh, glycemic impact. So that, that's the kind of thing we use. It sounds... I'm sorry, it sounded like you used a lot of beans, which aren't indigenous, correct? No, and we did. And, and the reason we did that uh, was, uh, uh, well, there, there were more than, more, definitely there was more than one reason. But one of the big reasons we use legumes is they're relatively non-perishable, they're cheap, and they're extremely high 
in fiber and low in glycemic index, so and glycemic load as well. So they are the perfect food for poor people with diabetes or anyone for that matter. I mean, they just really are a wonderful food. And if you're taking away um, meat, you, you want to be providing something that's a decent source of protein, iron, zinc, those nutrients that they would have been relying on meat for. So legumes are the obvious choice and definitely by far the best choice for people with diabetes. So we used a lot of legumes. We used legumes at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And you can imagine these people, they, they were literally living on about five or six grams of fiber a day. And all of a sudden they're eating 50 or 60. So they were going, they, they, were go, they went from going to the bathroom once a week or once every two weeks in some cases to going every day, which was actually frightening for some of them. It was just not something they'd ever experienced. So, so it, was, what, it was quite a, what was a great, you know, quite a, a change. And I have to tell you this as well, Kirk. It was um, one of the things that for people to just understand in terms of what these people eat, uh, I think it's nice to know. Like their breakfast normally is white cake donuts and coffee for the adults. For the children, it's whatever the heck is available that they care to eat. We saw kids eating a popsicle and, you know, a can of Coke for breakfast. Um, they'll eat one of their favorite meals for the kids is ramen noodles, dry ramen noodles that are kind of deep-fried salty noodles with Kool-Aid powder sprinkled on top to give them some flavor. Um, they, uh, lunch and dinner were this, was this white sticky rice that has a glycemic index of, I think, 83 or something like that. Just for comparison, sugar has a, a glycemic index of about 65. So uh, just, you know, really, and then on top of the rice, they would put spam or, or chicken or some sort of luncheon meat and they would wash it down with something called luau. And luau, the number one ingredient is high fructose corn syrup. So it's essentially high fructose corn syrup and a bunch of color and flavor. And that's what they were living on. Um, and rarely having a fruit or vegetable in the mix. Tell me, I wanted to go back to breakfast for a second. So you said beans and greens. What was the greens that, that was available on the island or how, did that was grown there or did they have to import it or what was it? Yeah, so a mix of both. We tried to get as much local green. So there would be a local spinach. There was a, they had a couple of farms. There was a Taiwanese farm, and they actually donated a lot of greens to us. They were very, very kind. When we were doing the research, they gave us, you know, cases of, of produce, which was wonderful. So they would have, you know, some Chinese greens. Um, we would use, we even had a, we were growing a moringa tree, and we would put moringa leaves in things. <laughs> so, and then, of course, in the grocery store, we whatever if they had, you know, uh, bok choy or or kale or or spinach or whatever we could get. Because um, when you walk into the grocery store, you never know what they'll have, and sometimes all they have is cabbage, and so you do cabbage. How many? Um what were the results? I mean, so we did this program about how long was the program and how did you test for the benefits? I mean, did blood sugars go down, hemoglobin A1Cs? What happened? Yeah, so, so basically what we did was people were with us for 24 weeks or six months. 
And and so for the first months that they were with us, um, you know, well, we it, we changed our, our program a little bit as we learned and went. But uh, in the beginning, the intensive was two weeks. But they were with us during intensive for four days a week uh, for about maybe six or seven hours a day. And then after that, for about a month, they would be with us for, for uh, twice a week. And then after that, it was once a week for the last month. And uh, or the last, yeah, for the last few months, I guess. No, for the last month. And then, and then they were on their own for three months. So that was how it went. And, and so um, uh, we, you know, of course, when they were doing the intervention, uh, the results were, were really quite, quite, you know, when, they were, when we were feeding them uh, almost all of their meals, uh, we had average blood glucose drops of about 70 points. Um, and um, at 12 weeks, it was still almost 50 points. A1Cs at 12 weeks were down about two points, and, and the um, uh, you know cholesterol came down. The um, CRP, or the high sensitivity CRP, came down about 1.2 points as well. And and so that was in the um, you know that was in the the uh, experimental kind of program, but once we started coming back and doing programs on a regular basis, sometimes we see in two weeks' time, we see blood glucose drops averaging somewhere between 60 and 120 points. Um, so it's, it's really quite shocking what happens in two weeks. And of course, probably 95% of our participants had to go off all their medications, um, which was great. The problem, you know, that the, the main problem that we really experienced was um, people going back to their homes and slowly going off the program because they couldn't afford the food uh, or couldn't eat differently than their families. It was just too hard. They often have fridges and stoves and, you know, they'll be cooking in an open fire. and It's just, it, it's really quite challenging. So what we found is the people that were more well-off, where they had fridges and stoves and so forth, and where they were fairly well educated, they did extraordinarily well. I mean, we see people that even, you know, many years later are still diabetes-free, uh, which is wonderful. And, and the, I think the most uh, valuable part for the people of the Marshall Islands has been that we've given them hope. Because when they when we came, they, most of them thought diabetes was a kind of a disease that was a byproduct of the radiation testing. They had no idea it had anything to do with diet and lifestyle. Um, most of them came into the program not believing that diet and lifestyle had anything to do with it. Even the nurses and, you know, the educated people, they just had no clue that it was, uh, that it was at all diet-related. And so for them to see those kinds of uh, drops in in uh, their numbers in two weeks' time. And the other thing that we saw was in almost everybody, within a week or two, their pain was gone. So they, they had pain in their legs. They could hardly walk a, across a room, and it would just disappear. And so for the people of the Marshall Islands, they started to understand that, that in fact, diet does have something to do with it, and that if you change your diet, it can have a profound effect on the course of your disease. They also found that, you know, when we first got there, one of the things that was most shocking to me was that people would um, not walk two blocks. They would take a taxi. 
because in their culture it was um, a sign that you weren't um, rich enough to be able to afford a taxi if you walked. And a taxi cost, I think when we arrived it was 25 cents and now it's 50 cents or something like that. <laughs> and, um, and, and it would take you, you know, wherever downtown. And so walking was just, you didn't see people walking very much. And, and now, this is, what, 10 years later, um, people are walking everywhere. They, they now understand how critical walking is to treating uh, as, a, as a sort of a treatment uh, for diabetes. And so we have people walk after every meal. They're out walking. And, um, and we've just found that to be hugely important. And, and so what we saw within very short order was you know, we were organizing walkathons, and you know, eventually the the police actually closed parts of the roads for the morning so that people could walk safely. <laughs> um, so That's great. it was it was it was really a big. And then the other big change we saw was that uh, the 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 grocery stores started to receive a demand for healthy food, and and so now there's little health food sections often at the grocery stores, and there's. You know, they're a lot, they have way more produce than they used to have. And some stores carry things like, uh, you know, quinoa and, and steel-cut oats and all of these, these kinds of products, even the ones that don't, don't carry um, produce. They'll, they'll carry some uh, healthier non-perishables, uh, lots more beans than they ever used to carry before, and lentils. And um, so anyway, we're, we're seeing some very, very positive changes. Well, it would seem like that if the, if the U.S. government was going to subsidize anything, they could subsidize big bags of beans and, and, I don't know, seeds that could help people grow things that obviously would make sense and, and be healthy. But I don't know how, how that works. I don't know how all that food gets there. Um, what's, uh, so are you going to go back to the Marshall Islands anytime soon, or are you... Here? Yes, I have a plan to go back in November okay. of next year. Got it. Well, thank you. And so I was there in February of this year. Oh, in February of this year, great. Well, yeah. Brent, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I think you got the message out. If you don't mind, I'm gonna when I put a link under my my podcast and then the YouTube, I'll link it up to your slideshow. Is that okay? Oh, that's great. Because uh, the slideshow speaks a thousand words. I mean, I show pictures of whole intact carbohydrates, and this, you know, and if it, if an indigenous people can use it, then the average person in the U.S. or Canada can use it, and and get Absolutely. some relief. Oh, well, you know, that's one of the things that I have to say is is often I get asked the question is, you know, well, would this program work at home? And it makes me emotional when people ask me that because. I think of these people who have no fitness facilities, no money, no place to grow produce. Um, they have to wear, the women wear these big moo-moo dresses, so even their clothing isn't very conducive to exercise. Um, they have every barrier you can possibly think of, and yet they're managing in many cases to do this. And here we are in North America with everything. We have access to all the food we could possibly want, all the healthy food. We have the fitness facilities. We have the hiking trails. We have the money. We have all of this. And so if, to me, if it's possible in the Marshall Islands, it's possible anywhere. It's, it, it, you know, we, what are our excuses? There are none. I mean, we, do, we have to start to offer lifestyle 
you know, medicine as a, as a viable option, as a treatment for people with these diseases. And we're not there yet. Our medical system is set up to, to uh, prescribe drugs and do surgeries. We're not yet set up to spend time with helping people to learn how to live healthfully. And that has got to change. Because, you know, bandages will only do so much. If we're, we've got to get to the root causes of these diseases, and these diseases are becoming, you know, wild epidemics. And we've got to recognize that not only can we halt, you know, the, uh, the, the rate of increase in these diseases, but we can reverse these diseases where they already exist, if we so choose. And it's just doctors have got to start to recognize that these treatments are the most powerful, most cost-effective, that the fewest, uh, you know, the, of all the side effects are positive, not negative. It makes no sense that we're not using these things as treatment options. You know, I had a, I, I want to I, I just finish up by telling you the story of a man that I worked with recently whose doctor, he was, a, he had type 2 diabetes, of, you know, since 1993, he had heart disease. He had just had a serious heart attack when I started working with him. High blood pressure, high cholesterol, uh, peripheral artery disease. He was in renal failure, recurring gout, early stage renal failure, but renal failure nonetheless. He was being treated with 17 pills a day and 40 units of insulin. And his doctor told him that he would probably be dead within two years to get his affairs in order. And after less than a year on a whole food plant-based diet, he was off all his medications. His fasting glucose was normal, A1C normal, blood pressure was 115 over 70. His kidney function returned to normal. His gout disappeared. Uh, even the scar tissue in his heart was starting to reverse. And, and you know, he still, this is five years ago, he's still medication-free. Uh, and, and, you know, he went to his doctor after all of this and said, why didn't you tell me? that this was possible just by changing the food that I eat. And his doctor said, if you would have told me this was possible, I would have said I don't believe you. He said, because I didn't know this was possible. We don't learn this stuff in medical school. So our physicians aren't equipped, and we need to start to equip physicians with this kind of knowledge. In, I'm actually going to be teaching in Lithuania in March, and they're having a, you know, um, starting a lifestyle medicine um, uh, uh, program at the medical school, and then another master's of lifestyle medicine as well. And so it'll be an optional, you know, three-month course for, for physicians, but that should be in every medical school uh, in the world, as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, and our government has to start supporting the, these treatment alternatives that actually work. Well, I, to heal people. you know, I, I hear your passion. <laughs> You're very inspirational. And I, and when I was at the, um, the plant-based healthcare conference, one of the things that I share with patients, you know, there's, there were 700 plus health professionals there, but when the hundred, the contingent of a hundred people from Kaiser got up there, you know, yeah. if, if they could implement this in that type of facility, then eyes would get wide open because yeah and that's exactly the direction they're moving and it is very exciting so we can all you know just celebrate that that um 
initiative, the initiatives that they're starting at Kaiser. It's a wonderful thing. Well, Brenda, thank you very much. Um, you have a website. You want to throw that out there that people can go to yeah, to find your books? BrendaDavisRD.com. BrendaDavisRD.com. I'll have that available. Thank you so much. And oh, uh, thanks so much well, for having me. We'll talk soon, and I want to thank you, the audience, for listening to this edition of the Staying Healthy Today show. Remember, these links will be below the YouTube video and also at my podcast site, uploaded iTunes. I'll talk to you soon, and you have a fabulous day.